Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I am actually really excited to be here, and not just because Chris is here this weekend. No, I am excited for today in this sermon because it's uh, it's kind of something that I talk about a lot in my personal life, um, and so now I get to actually like preach about it. It's uh, it's something that's deeply personal to my own story and my own upbringing, and so to have the opportunity to discuss it with you all, my my friends, my family, um, discuss what I've learned and hopefully help other people avoid some similar situations, or for those who have experienced something similar, um, that they know that there are safe people out there um, and that there aren't demons behind every corner, as we're going to explore. As the series has gone, um, the sermon is based on Joel 2, verse 32, which Peter quotes in Acts 2, verse 21. Um, and we'll get into the text a little bit more um, later on. But the basic idea that we're talking about is saving or delivering people from spiritual oppression. Um, but what does that mean is a very good question. One of the things that's fascinated me about this series uh, that we've been going through is how living a deeply spiritual life is often much simpler than I had thought or I had imagined. And, um, and so I've appreciated hearing different people's uh, inputs and perspectives on things throughout this series. And it kind of makes sense that, uh, the spiritual can be a lot simpler than we imagined when we think of how often we deem spiritual as like the most dramatized or exaggerated versions of things that we see um, in media or just represented by the most charismatic of individuals or churches. And to be honest, it's usually pretty intriguing. It captivates our attention, our sense of wonder and awe, our deep-seated yearning for something kind of mystical almost, or perhaps some other curious part of us. Many religions and cultures from all over the world have some concept of the spiritual, of the demonic, um, and many practice various forms of deliverance or exorcism as a way of healing people. Poets, theologians, other kinds of authors and thinkers throughout history have spoken of such things and described such things. So it's not really a new idea for us, but obviously it appears in some different ways for us too. I often joke with some of my close friends that I think I'm weird because I love watching horror movies. And I know there's a reason some people have theories. You may guess. I will not tell you what they are. So if you don't watch horror movies, let me tell you. There are a ton of them about exorcisms, demons, deliverance, or any other kind of word you want to throw at this theme. The Exorcist, for example, is one of the most well-known horror movies, which shaped many people's imaginations around the demonic and deliverance. It came out in 1973 and is still the sixth highest earning horror movie in history. So it's, it's done well. The Paranormal Activity franchise, which depicts demonic possession and influence, is the ninth highest grossing horror franchise in history. Um, and then the Conjuring franchise, which is kind of based off of that, which includes movies with subtitles like The Devil Made Me Do It, is number one with over $2 billion in earnings. So we, no doubt, watched a lot of these things and we're intrigued by it but the reality is these kinds of beliefs and practices are actively happening in the church as we speak they're not just in movies or in the media just a few years ago 
the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops made publicly available a document under sacraments and blessings, all about exorcisms and who can and cannot perform them and, uh, and who can determine if it is in fact demonic, though it won't tell you how they determine that. This may or may not surprise you, depending on your background um, and what you spend your spare time on, but some of us wonder why this might be. And the thing is, when we're afraid or we're suffering or we're, we're going through something significant and, and alone, we're desperate to make sense of our experience. But I think, from my own experience, in life sometimes, it just feels kind of like indescribable almost, doesn't it? And horror movies are often allegories for trauma or mental health or something like that. And, and sometimes these images that we use uh, are a representation of an internal experience in an effort to communicate something. Because it can feel like nobody else really can understand the torment that we're experiencing. Or where they're showing up um, in the ways that they're supposed to, but it still doesn't hit us the same. Or maybe we're doing all the right things to feel better, to get better, but it doesn't really work. It's natural to want something that will remedy our experience. And we do this in many ways, obviously some healthy and some less so. And I think we all deserve a tremendous amount of compassion for being in those or surviving those spaces. We were just trying to feel better and see what works. And so one option is we turn to the spiritual in search of a solution that might be beyond our wildest imagination. But depending on context, that has proven to easily become a space of abuse and leaving us feeling more alone, more hurt, more distrusting, yet still somehow more dependent on these oppressive systems at the same time. We have no answers, but these people do. And often in these cases, mental health and wounds are misdiagnosed as demonic, prohibiting a person from accessing adequate resources and care. So the big question is, what does Jesus save us from? What's up with exorcisms? What happens after the arrival of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that Peter feels so inclined to declare then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved or delivered. In fact, as we'll, we'll discuss, we don't just have to imagine that there's spiritual warfare with demons and angels all around us. We can have a deeply spiritual life and an understanding of the Holy Spirit without demons crouching behind every corner. So the way I'm going to do this, I think, is... Um, I'm going to kind of take us through some texts and some examples from Jesus' ministry in life, and we'll talk about that. And then towards the last half, I'll just share some of my story with some of these things, and so you can kind of see it connect. Um, but we know that the Bible talks about the devil, demons, and Satan. They are in there, so we can't avoid it. But there are a few points in the Gospels that reveal something about the work of Jesus in saving people from spiritual oppression. And so the first story I want us to look at is we remember that after Jesus' uh, baptism, he goes out into the wilderness and he's, and he's tested or tempted, however you want to put it, in the wilderness for 40 days and is tested by the devil. Um, and what Jesus does here actually shapes the rest of the story that we'll go through and we'll see. It's in a few different gospel accounts, but we'll look at the one in Luke's version together. So from, uh, from Luke, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, 
Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone that I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Key moment here. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus is in the wilderness, and the devil tempts him with all these incredibly enticing offers. Just use the fact that you're God to relieve your hunger, to relieve your suffering. You can have all the glory of the world and rule over everyone. You could just control everyone for your benefit. Except you have the devil as your master. You'll never escape. Surely, if you're God, you should at least be invincible. You could throw yourself off this really tall point and angels would protect you. But Jesus doesn't give in to the temptation for glory and power and wealth. He knows what he's here for, who he is here for. And he silences the devil. He binds him up. Have you ever noticed that after this encounter, the devil never shows up again? None of the gospels have the devil reappear after this encounter with Jesus in the desert, because Satan has been bound. So the rest of the Gospels are viewed through that lens, that Jesus has bound Satan, and that shapes the rest of his ministry. There's a second story about Jesus with the demonic that I want to look at with, uh, with you all, and that's found in Luke 11. Um, and this is when some people have accused uh, Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan as you'll see in a moment. But we'll read this and, again, just keep talking about it. In verse 14, it says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your exorcists cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is saying that casting out demons by the power of Satan makes no sense. That would mean the kingdom is divided against itself and it would not be able to withstand. Their argument is flawed, and Jesus points out that it puts them in an inescapable conundrum. By whose power then are they kicking out demons? But Jesus goes further with this binding the strong man bit, keeping in mind that Jesus 
seven chapter I can I can do math seven chapters earlier um, has already bound Satan in the desert he says when someone stronger than the strong man comes along he binds him up overpowers him takes away all of his self-protection and defense mechanisms and divides what he has stolen from the stronger man his people you've kept them under your power and control you've deprived them of life and kept them in oppression now I am taking them back. This is the power of God rescuing people from oppression, whether that be spiritual, social, economic, political, racial, every kind of injustice, colonialism, Jesus is delivering people from those spaces. From the moment that Jesus binds Satan in the desert, Jesus is taking back what is his from the strong man, his people, the vulnerable, the ostracized, he is breaking into Israel and stealing all of the plunder. This is how we understand the demon exorcisms in the Gospels, that Jesus is now taking back what's his. He's reclaiming them from the devil who stole them and kept them under oppressive systems. Even in Jesus' interactions with the demonic that occur in some places, he's always silencing the demon, but also always granting dignity to the person. He's never coercive or harsh. He rescues this beloved child from the captivity of the devil. It's always about restoring people to wholeness and life with love and compassion. Jesus sees himself as the weak man, or as Luke refers to him, the stronger man against the strong man, Satan. It's the same idea that's presented um, in Exodus that the Israelites were held in captivity by the evil oppression of Pharaoh. And upon hearing their cries, God sends Moses and Aaron to rescue her people from slavery and from harm, to deliver them. But first, God had to bind the strong man, Pharaoh. God silences Pharaoh and exposes the flaws in his system. Then God divides the stolen, taking back her children into safety and love and abundance. In the same way, Jesus does this. He binds up Satan and he reclaims his beloved. Jesus is taking back his treasured ones from the grip of Satan, from the grip of these false gods that are made of gold and silver, from the grip of mammon, from the things that promise life but only delivered death. He's putting an end to evil. And soon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, his followers will continue the work of spreading this good news by delivering people from these same systems of harm and oppression. These gods that they've created won't fix it. These solutions that you've created to ensure your own well-being at the cost of all others will fail. The walls that you've put up to retain power and control over other people will fall. You've held my people captive, but I'm rescuing them, says Jesus. As Jennings puts it, possession, mastery, and control are the demonic virtues. They're not the virtues of Jesus. They will not save us. Jesus saves us by returning us to himself, into our own bodies, into communities of love and safety, by overturning the way the world works now and in the future so that all people can experience and receive salvation. Joel 3, and this is the last text that, that we'll look at, um, just after the proclamation that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that's in chapter 2 right at the end, 
Chapter three begins like this. For then, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations. They have divided my land and cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine and drunk it down. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon? Where are all the regions of Philistia? I don't even know. Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will turn your deeds back upon your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, removing them far from their own border. But now I will rouse them to leave the places to which you have sold them, and I will turn your deeds back upon your own heads. Jesus is taking back his treasured ones. He has bound up Satan, and he's reclaiming his people, both in the immediate and ongoing into the future. The neglected, the survivors of abuse, the demonized, those from the margins are all being restored in love. That's what it means to deliver people from evil. In fact, the word for salvation in Hebrew, as it appears in Joel, is often rendered to escape or to bring um, someone or yourself to safety. But we still often think spiritual deliverance only refers to this violent, dramatic exorcism intended to kick demons out of us. Now, thankfully, we do have more awareness around mental health and trauma and abuse so that more people are actually getting the help they need from professionals when necessary. But exorcisms are still alive and well and harm still occurs. There are many Christians and people of other religions and cultures still practice it in various forms, as I said. We're still trying to resolve some of our problems with these solutions. Neurodivergence is still being demonized, abuse is being ignored, and people are being harmed. I spent a bit of time looking into some exorcisms that have uh, occurred recently in our history, um, and, uh, and some of it is quite tragic, so I'm just, they're not on a slide. I'm just gonna share a few of the, the headlines that I came across and, um, and then share some of my own story. But um, in September of 2021, a three-year-old girl was killed during an exorcism in a small Pentecostal church in San Jose, California. Um, she died of asphyxiation because of the way she was being handled in this exorcism. In 2005, a Romanian Orthodox nun died in an ambulance after an exorcism in which she was chained to a cross. In 2022, a 19-year-old man died of dehydration after his parents tied him down in their basement and performed exorcisms on him for seven days. Within the past three years, two different children from two different families on two different occasions in London were thrown from balconies because adults believed they were possessed with demons or bad spirits. Um, bringing it back home to, to Canada, a case was opened just last year in Saskatchewan against a school that forcibly performed exorcisms on queer students. Also in Saskatchewan, a Bible camp worker was fired after performing exorcisms on teenagers and telling them afterward that they had to stay in contact with him because he was the only one who knew how to get rid of the demons in their lives. Exorcisms are still being practiced and people are still being harmed by these forms of abuse 
These are just some of the examples of how it appears though. Exorcism is often disguised through language like deliverance or something else pertaining to spiritual freedom. But these practices often look eerily similar and it can be just as damaging even if it is disguised as something else. I had a slightly hard time not turning this into just like a massive rant about this book called Soul Care, but I'm still gonna go off on it for a little bit. But if you wanna know more of my thoughts or you wanna just have a conversation, please come talk to me. I'd love to have coffee and talk about these things. Soul Care, some of you may have heard of it or you've just heard me talking about it in conversations, but it's a book and it's a program written by uh, a guy named Rob Reamer, who's a professor at the Alliance Theological Seminary in New York. Um, it's a seven step book or program that is designed to help you heal wounded parts of your life so that you can live a more full and free life with Jesus. Soul care follows patterns that borderline on prosperity gospel, the idea that if you follow these steps, your problems in life will disappear and you will flourish. Uh, while soul care does briefly address some good general mental health points and also touches on uh, concepts of intergenerational wounds and healing, um, it fundamentally over-spiritualizes mental health and relational health. It victim blames and utilizes spiritual bypassing to further its fear-induced, power-hungry, and controlling message. It does not follow the way that Jesus interacts with the demonic. As an example of where this book goes wrong, at one point, Rob Reamer gives a description of intrusive thoughts. Now, you're all smart people and you probably don't need this, but here's a definition from the OCD and Anxiety Center on intrusive thoughts that I looked up, just for fun. It says, intrusive thoughts are unwanted thoughts, impulses, images, or urges that can occur spontaneously or that can be cued by external slash internal stimuli. Typically, these thoughts are distressing, hence intrusive, and tend to reoccur. Medical professionals acknowledge that while certain mental health conditions can affect the kind of intrusive thoughts that you have or uh, the frequency in which they occur, they are incredibly common and are not always due to a mental health condition. Yet Rob Reamer says that they are demonic. After I first heard this seven or eight years ago, I spent the next several months, maybe even longer, thinking that I had a demon every single time that I had an intrusive thought. It wasn't my fault, I just didn't have anybody in my life at that point saying anything otherwise, nor did I think there was any reason to because these were friends, these were trusted pastors that had told me this. And that's part of the problem. I trusted them, and so they couldn't be wrong, could they? Rob Reamer also blames emotional dysregulation and anxiety on demonic influence, as he does with PTSD flashbacks. Soul care constantly uh, misuses scripture and blames survivors of abuse for their suffering. It also uses the term soul tie to describe an unhealthy connection between your soul and someone else's, usually resulting from a sexual interaction with that person, though you can supposedly acquire them in many ways. While the actual deliverance of demons section to soul care is, is like at the end of the book um, or at the end of the program, whichever you do, he says that not everybody who goes through deliverance will have demons, though I have never seen it be the case according to what he labels demons, that is. I first went through this program when I was a young adult at my old church, and it was like a young adult study group. And as the book instructs, we were divided into, into groups of three, men and women separate because we're a good evangelical church. and. 
then you're supposed to, like every week, we would read a chapter of the book, then we'd watch a sermon from Rob Reamer, and then we would go into our little triads, and we were supposed to openly discuss and share our most personal experiences and confess our hidden sins to one another. Mind you, most of us had not met each other at this point, or like prior to this thing. It throws already vulnerable people into unsafe spaces, and we're totally exposed which is a big no-no if you ask me. At the end of this, you get to go through your own deliverance if you can manage to get one of the two trained pastors to do it for you in their busy schedule. You are essentially left waiting, thinking that you have these demons in your life, hoping you get an opportunity for the pastor to come in and make you better. Until then, just endure. There's nothing you can do. I was friends with these two pastors, and so I was fortunate enough to be one of the first to have it done. I remember them telling me leading up to it that I might not have demons, but they also said explicitly that they expected it based on certain things that they had seen in me, but they did not tell me what. Which, at the time, I didn't realize sounds bad, but now, like, when I wrote that down yesterday, I was like, oh, cool. Um, We scheduled my deliverance for a few weeks later. I think in their minds I had to prepare somehow, but really I just sat anxiously for three weeks. And that's part of the problem with these things is we're telling already anxious people that they have demons. How is that not supposed to make me more anxious? Remember, I've seen horror movies and I know what demons are like and they're not messing around in these movies. So that's what I'm imagining, partly, at least in my head. Anyways, I go to my friend's place. They're married, these two pastors. And I sit on a couch like across from them and they explain the process of how it would go. And my friend, to his credit, did this quite gently. Still having no idea really what was about to happen, I was still anxious, but I was entrenched in this system and fully bought into it. I had to believe it would work. See, I might've mentioned this in a sermon here before, I can't remember. But at the time of going into my deliverance, I had severe anxiety that manifested itself in this like weird physical thing that would make me feel really, really sick. And no matter what I tried to make it go away or do or help relieve that uh, that feeling or anything my mom tried to do to help me, like nothing worked. Um, and it had like it had deprived me of certain social events. Of it had messed up like vacations and days at work, days at school. Um, but I, I just it kept persisting and I couldn't get rid of it. My final hope, I thought, was that it might be a demon. That's where I was at in my life, that I was so desperate for relief from this severe anxiety that I didn't know was anxiety, um, that I hoped it was a demon so they could just kick it out and it would be gone. So there I am, sitting across from my friend, and his once calm and gentle demeanor quickly shifted into a stern and serious and intimidating look. He was no longer loving and gentle, but he was firm and direct, no more smiling. To call a demon to attention, which is the first part in this process, he says a phrase, and then I'm supposed to listen and repeat back whatever I hear. Uh, Usually you're asked things like what their name is, followed by what they want, why they are present, and if there are other demons around them. And they repeat this process over and over and over and over and over again until they have determined at some random point that there are no more demons. Um, When my friend would try to call to a demon, I had to listen and repeat what I heard. Now, here's the thing. 
if I told you for right now, just as an example, if I said there's a bird outside and I want you all to listen for the bird, what would you do? You'd probably like turn your attention towards a window maybe. Maybe shift your head. You'd get quiet. Maybe you start looking around because you're trying to like be aware of the sound of the bird. Do I hear something? You're listening. You're being attentive. Well, when I was told to listen to what I heard, I naturally started positioning myself in much the same manner. But whenever I would look away from my friend, I was yelled at by him, telling me to keep uncomfortable eye contact with him from like three feet away um, because it was demons that were steering my eyes away from him. This went on for three or four hours. Calling a demon, me struggling to hear a word or a name or a phrase, because no matter what I said, it was a demon. And they had to bind it up and they had to throw it out before moving on to the next one. It was exhausting, it was humiliating, and it's draining. Finally, when it was over after those three or four hours, and for the first time in this entire day, I might add, they asked me if I heard anything from Jesus. Out of whatever dissociated mind-body state that I was in, I did sense Jesus say to me that I was loved. And at the time, I thought it was because God was proud of me for dealing with my demons and getting rid of them. But after years of working through that, I believe that that was the spirit reminding me after hours of being mistreated and dismissed that my anxiety was not bad and I wasn't bad and what I had just gone through was not okay, but I was not alone. These pastors would probably take credit for this if they ever heard it, but my anxiety legitimately changed on that day. And that physical uh, manifestation of anxiety has never returned. But it wasn't because they got rid of a bunch of demons. It was because Jesus is kind and loving and generous and rescues his people. Despite my own terrible experience with soul care, I was young and I was fully immersed in it. Like I said, I trusted the people who had kicked these demons out of me. And now that I had, I was granted the privilege of assisting on other people's deliverances. My church hosted a big soul care intensive weekend where you do the whole thing in three days. And on the final day, there's a bunch of people stationed around the room, like picture a massive church room. Um, and uh, there's, past, like, there's pastors centered around it. And then people choose a deliverance pastor from the room. Um, each pastor had about three to 10 people, depending. Um, and they would just perform mass deliverances on these groups of people. I was the assistant to one of the pastors who had performed my own. And my job was simply this, to listen for the Holy Spirit telling me what demons were in the people, and then subtly tell my friend so as to not distract her. I was also supposed to look through this binder that had probably 20 to 30 pages or more. Um, each one, a type of demon and a list of reasons as to why a person might have that kind of demon. They could be invited by any number of things from basic mental health conditions to playing with Pokemon cards I'm not kidding, or listening to inappropriate music, or watching pornography, or a list of dozens of other things. I sat there silent the entire time, doubting myself because I wasn't hearing anything other than the fact that I felt bad watching people, some of whom were my friends, go through the same thing that I did. 
knowing. Some of them are actively withholding certain things because they're afraid of the repercussions. Many of them left feeling broken and hopeless and betrayed by our pastor. The reality is too many of us have been told that our suffering is our own fault, that struggling with our mental health is our own fault. Too many of us have been told that we either have demons possessing us or demonic strongholds in our lives. We're told to confess our sins, our innermost secrets, to trusted pastors and spiritual guides. And when we say that, we've, that we have looked at porn or we've struggled with anxiety or depression or whatever other piece of personal information, we're told that we have a demon in our life. Luckily for us, there's a solution for that. Just go through this program and let us get rid of the demon. It's frightening, but they have the cure. In fact, they're the only ones with the cure. It makes us question our own voice or anybody else who says that this is crazy. It makes us feel like there, um, there might be hope, but we need to keep the demons at bay by not sinning. I thought that for a long time. It makes every negative thought or feeling that you have seem demonic. It makes us more afraid than we even were before. It is incredibly damaging and dangerous and harmful. This is not what Jesus does in his interactions with the demonic. Jesus would never, never yell at demons through your face until you give up out of exhaustion. He would never tie you down and starve you or deprive you of water. He would never throw you out a window or tell you you're evil or tell you that your mental health is evil or that it's demonic. He wants to rescue, from that, rescue you from that kind of harm, not exacerbate it. Jesus saves as in he rescues us from the grip of evil. It's evil to use your spiritual power and authority to prevent people from receiving the care they need um, and authority to prevent um, and labeling things, normal things as demonic. It's evil to suggest that only certain people of power in the church can help you in a time of suffering. Jesus has bound up Satan and he's taking all of the beloved children back. The voice of God is loving and compassionate, not threatening and domineering. And the arrival of the Holy Spirit empowers us to go and live like Jesus to deliver people like Jesus. As in, we can participate in the work of helping people out of these systems of oppression and overturning them, uh, these systems that prevent people from flourishing. That's the work of the spirit. That's being spiritual. Jennings says we can only do this work after the arrival of the spirit. That's the call. Salvation, deliverance, rescue is available for all people who call in the name of the Lord. It doesn't get filtered down through priests and pastors, obscured along the way by demonic strongholds in your life. You are good, and you are loved just as you are. Your emotions are good. You deserve care and loving assistance. You are not to blame for your suffering. You're not suffering because you played Pokemon, or had anxiety, or looked at porn, or are queer, or survived abuse. You are suffering because of the evil one. And God says, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to rescue you from the people and the systems and the spiritual oppression that convince you that you are unlovable and broken. From the people who keep you from healing. 
we get to participate in that work because of the Holy Spirit. It's not just for us, it is for all people. I mentioned it just in passing earlier, but I just want to add too that spiritual bypassing is also harmful. Even if we aren't told that we have demons, many of us have been told at one point or another that our problems are purely spiritual in nature. Meaning we haven't prayed enough or our faith is weak. Or simply put, sometimes people just pray for an end to our suffering, but do nothing or little to alleviate it. If we go into somebody's house who is being abused and we just pray for them, that is spiritual bypassing. It's avoiding the problem and diminishing their experience. And Jesus doesn't do that. The Spirit leads us to help people out of those situations, to escape harm. I found this cool thing from Brueggemann, and uh, when asked about what the common good has to do with salvation, Walter Brueggemann said this, and I think it's quite beautiful. He said, salvation, to the extent that it is this worldly, the common good has everything to do with salvation. And if salvation in some way is more than this worldly, then it is simply a dreaming extension of the same thing beyond our present life, whatever that means. Certainly in the Old Testament, you have to start with this world, a communal well-being. And then I think in the imagination of Jesus and the church, we imagine what will be beyond this world. But, he says, if you start the other way, as in imagining what salvation is beyond this present life, and then working backwards to this world, then you diminish the materiality of salvation. And it turns into a kind of, and I quote, messy, spooky business. Salvation is material. It is now, and it extends beyond this present life. Jesus rescues his people from harm now, and he is not violent, and he is not harsh. The work of the Spirit is gentle and speaks the language of all people, We do the same and help people escape systems that tell them they are unloved and broken until one day there are no such systems. 